You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. With sustainability being a subject we always have to cover on this show, our latest voice on the matter is British stylist and founder of Relux Fashion, Claire Richardson. While most of the industry knows her work through the beautiful images she's had a hand in making, it's her very own platform that's newly taken the lead in the story of her life. After having had her daughter, Claire found herself far more aware and invested in the subject of her planet's future and started thinking about ways she could somehow contribute to the improvement on the part of fashion's role in the matter. Today we get to hear about her discovery of that passion and the journey that's led to the launch of what has quickly become a successful resale favorite for the conscious consumer. This is Claire Richardson and we're talking about what's contemporary now. We like to start in the beginning with an autobiographical nod, which is a personal favorite for me, and set the stage. And given that the industry knows you as an accomplished stylist whose resume is made up of an impressive body of work, obviously adding entrepreneur to that list with a shiny halo of fast-growing success, I wanted to start and find out what you were like as a kid before it got all fanciful and complicated. I was shy and very nerdy. I was not into fashion. My family, parents had no interest in the world I surround myself with now. And I think it was about, I don't know, around 13, 14, discovering magazines that blew me away. I want to say it was maybe an escapism as well. Just the photography, everything that inspired me. I think that really opened up a whole world to me. You describe yourself as having been shy. And I personally can't imagine that because anybody who has decided to take on what you've decided to take on in your career requires a little bit of audacity. So at what point did the shyness start to go away? I think it's masking that. (laughs) I'm very good at masking. So I think uh, my husband will vouch. I think I am still shy. I'm really passionate about what I do. And I always have been. And finding this world at university, I was at St. Martin's and discovering this world and going to the library and plowing into the magazines from Dutch to ID. And it was this world that I felt I belonged to. So therefore, maybe feeling acceptance and just something that I really, really enjoy probably put me at ease. Central St. Martin's is a legendary institution. I'm sure that you encountered all types of people there. What would you describe as some of your primary takeaways from that time in your life? Oh my gosh. I think honestly, when I was at Sixth Form College, actually discovering St. Martin's, knowing that I wanted to do fashion, but being like, where can I go to do this? And obviously my parents had no sort of knowledge of that world. And then coming across St. Martin's and reading about all these amazing people who had gone there and not knowing what I wanted to do there, but just thinking this is the place I really, really want to go to. And I think There I was given so much freedom, which can be really overwhelming to some people. You're left to your own devices. And I do feel like it is survival of the fittest there. Mm -hmm. And really having to manage my own time and thinking, okay, I've got to get a job to support myself, but I also want to do a work experience. And I also have to produce a magazine and do the graphics, the photography, the styling the writing, and you just had to throw yourself into it. I think so many of our course, it put them off. But the other people who wanted to do it had the passion to really want to do it and follow it through. So I think it just made you stronger. 
It's interesting you bring up the intimidation aspect of having complete free reign because you would imagine that from a creative perspective, people appreciate the absence of parameters and complete carte blanche. But at the end of the day, it's been my experience that most people seem to require some type of framework in which they can create or some type of a container because otherwise you're looking at an open plane and that can be quite overwhelming. Oh, yeah. Even nowadays, I think with clients, brands, etc., you dream about having open reign. And then when you do, you're like, this is <laughs> so much. But at St. Martin, you really could let your imagination run wild. And that was so amazing. And just tapping into things you're into, be it music, films, everything. And you could go there and research. And I loved it. For me, it was like doing work experience and figuring out. I thought I wanted to be a writer. And then I realized I was really bad at writing and my dyslexia was not helping with my writing and quickly figured out that was not the right thing to do. Did you have that in mind in addition to work in a hands-on capacity in fashion or was it the initial? I mean, there were so many things that I wanted to do. Yeah. But initially it was to be a fashion writer and I would travel up to London on my holidays when I wasn't being a shop girl and would work at newspapers for free. And I started to be given things to write and just realized, wow, that is not my natural forte. I should not be going into that bit of it. So it was good. It was great because it was a process of elimination. I got to experience it and followed my intuition, my gut. That necessarily wasn't right. So what was the aha moment when you knew that styling was the thing? You know, I'd like to build it as this big aha moment, but I think it was a lot of trial and error and then realizing this was something I really enjoyed and working with teams and being inspired by the photographer who we were shooting, the research storytelling element of it and felt like it was really natural to me. I think that was it. And then I was assisting Elliot Smedley and he was Christopher Bailey's right hand. And I would do all different aspects for him, but like loving researching. And that just was such an amazing thing for me was to go off to libraries and museums and just research and research. And I was just like, wow, if this can be part of my job, this is amazing. It's absolutely a gift to be able to do what you love and get paid for it. Yeah. Anybody, you know, who has a J-O-B in place of a career would absolutely agree. In your career, obviously, from the time that you're explaining assisting to present day has entailed an impressive list of accolades. What are some of the benchmark kind of projects that jump out to you as pivotal in your career? Lots of different moments. I was working with Hedy a lot And I really enjoyed that. He's a man who is so creative in every aspect and probably could do every aspect of everything we all do. And just working really closely with him on editorials and just the things we did, the people we shot, I found so inspiring. Also working with Peter Lindbergh closely for a period of time. That was amazing. And formulating like really close friendships with that was so special to me. And then things like British Vogue doing covers. And I think, honestly, Christopher, so much of it is working with teams that I love and respect and admire. The whole experience of it and then producing work that you're truly proud of. And there's brands that I've really enjoyed working with. But I think the editorial 
is maybe one of the most creative outputs where there's less boundaries or there were less boundaries, should I say. So that definitely stands out. I was going to touch upon it, even though it's an obvious grab at what are some of those differences shooting those stories then versus shooting for magazines today? We all know that advertisers are such a strong component in magazines, editorials, and the demand for the collections when you're shooting, etc., is so huge from so many different aspects, be it front row people to stylists to the campaigns that the brands have to do that sometimes you can have a creative idea and want to shoot a certain story, but simply the demand for these pieces are so high that your creative story can almost fall apart because you can't get those pieces. That's why it's so nice when you don't have to be led by advertisers, etc. And you can think outside the box and create something so amazing without having those parameters. And also on the flip side is with more commercial magazines, you do have boxes you have to tick and sometimes it challenges you as well and makes you work and think harder in a sense. Yeah, I would imagine. And I mean, fashion is such a pervasive part of your life. You're talking about things like collaboration and working with different photographers and such, but you're even married to a fashion photographer. How does someone who lives entirely in the realm of the industry they work in find balance or perhaps it's escape? We have boundaries at home. I mean, listen, we will talk about it and we will go back and forth, but we are also very good at taking ourselves away out of it. We have an amazing special place upstate and that's where we go to get away. And I'll always say that's probably where some of my best ideas are because I actually have room to think. I have space in my brain then to come up with different things. So we are good at taking a breath from it. And it's really important to us as well to not live and breathe it every second. Yeah, you have to have that balance. Yeah. And I also think you need to be looking at other things, whether it's politics, what's going on in the world every moment, that's inspiring enough. You don't have to just live and breathe fashion. Of course. And you just mentioned upstate, which makes me think of sort of country homes and nature. What point in your life did you become aware of something like sustainability and the way it was being practiced or not practiced in the fashion industry? Again, going back to what we just said, I was, mm-hmm. and I always have, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on in news politics and reading more and more about it. So my awareness of the issues of climate change and what the fashion industry was specifically doing started to grow and I wanted to educate myself more and more on it. And then it wasn't suddenly, it was over time, but it became more apparent that my values, what I believed in was not sitting with what I was seeing. And honestly, Christopher, there was definitely a point like I had my ED, my first child, and I think that brings consciousness to it as well. So yeah, it was educating myself, seeing what was going on and really looking around me and thinking, okay, this isn't quite right, what we're doing. How did it change the way you navigated the industry and your role as a stylist? It's a hard line to do it, but I think slowly balancing it, working with my agents and what I think are my values, looking into brands that were asking me to work with them, seeing what their values social compliance, et cetera, were. And then seeing maybe if I can bring something to the table with them, if I could help them, advise them, 
And then sometimes saying no to things, honestly, that I can't do because it just doesn't sit with me. And you've clearly turned all of that conviction and interest in that particular space into a new brainchild business, otherwise known as Relux Fashion. And I was curious to hear what kind of the onset of that idea was. Where did it come from? When did you decide it was something that you wanted to take on? And how did the vision flesh itself out? Having my daughter and wanting to make a difference and feeling a huge amount of responsibility to what I was doing and in my job and feeling... It's hard to say, I don't want to say I was feeling slightly embarrassed about what I was doing, but I felt like I wanted to be able to make a difference in what I was doing, be it as small as it might be. And feeling afraid when I was reading articles and researching and trying to educate myself, thinking, okay, I need to change what I'm doing actively. And even if it's a small amount, at least I'm trying to do something and having more of a purpose. I think that was huge for me, having more of a purpose in my job with what I was doing and maybe a bit more integrity with it. And that turned into Relux. What was the, I feel like there are always early iterations of something before we arrive at that final point before launch. What has that process been for you, developing Relux as an idea and deciding how you wanted to use it to not only be a platform, but also create community and conversation and lean on things like collaboration and all the fun things that's already become in the short time that you've had it. Yeah. Relax is like my third child. And <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. There was definitely naivety with it when I was sitting at my table sketching it out. I knew it was going to be a business, but I didn't know to what extent it was going to be. I've always shot pre-loved, vintage, etc. And I've always been a fan, but just feeling like lots of sites were becoming almost like fast fashion models where you're just being fire hosed with tons and tons of product all the time. And wanting Relux to be the antithesis of that and this curated edit where you didn't have to shift through tons. And also this community that can inspire without being preachy, because I think that's a huge thing with sustainability Mm -hmm. in the fashion industry is people get turned off by it. A lot of people don't find it sexy at all, or they think it's this sort of perfectionism. And actually trying to inspire with a community, we launched with Amber Valletta, Zinnia Kamart. But in these interviews, it's also a lot of people saying that you don't have to be perfect. You can screw up with this. You just try. And for me, showing that small steps matter and not to shy away from that. If you can just do tiny things, it doesn't have to be that scary at all. It's so true. And so well said, I think a lot of people get analysis paralysis when they think they're obligated to be all or nothing of something when it comes to making those changes. And there are other resale platforms. It's not the one and only of its kind. And so I was curious as to what impact you'd like the platform to have or even how you see it differently from other platforms that exist in resale space. Yeah, no, of course. I think, as we mentioned, the curation is huge. The community, forward-facing women who I admire, who are friends of mine, who I look up to. I think that's really important to inspire other people Mm -hmm. on this platform to show that it's not scary, but also that we're just not a tech company selling you product. And then honestly, I really just want to shift the way people think and how we can make a difference just by in your wardrobe. 
I think it's something like women only worth 30% of their wardrobe in England. I mean, it's crazy. So if I can infiltrate people into buying pre-loved pieces or swapping pieces or repairing, it all makes a difference. We don't need, dare I say, any more clothes right now <laughs> on the planet. Well, you've certainly tapped into a growing marketplace when it comes to something like resale. Journalism covering that subject and its rapid and projected growth is pretty impressive in terms of the generational spending power represented in growing portions of the population, even the infamous Gen Z are rather famous at this point. How would you describe the difference between resale and circular fashion? These sort of buzzwords, I think we see a lot in conversations being had, be it by brands or by individuals who really want to support these important changes. And I think sometimes it's easy to confuse the difference between resale or when someone's saying this is circular fashion or we have to become more circular. Are those the same thing? And if not, how do they differ? Yes, you're right. The words are used quite flippantly. Resale is essentially what Relux does, where we are selling pieces from women's wardrobes who no longer feel a need for them or they want to go and buy more pre-loved pieces. Circular fashion can mean anything from that, but it can also mean brands that are working to find, I don't know whether it's fungi fabrics that can make a bag or a shoe and you're using all different products or plastic going into producing fashion pieces. So there can be a difference. And I think the thing is now the terminology used in sustainability is used a lot. And there's a lot of greenwashing to it, as I'm sure we all know. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard for the consumer to differentiate. Going back to greenwashing and certain fast fashion brands talking about circularity or sustainability, what is scary is if you keep repeating that over and over again, people will believe it mm -hmm. and people will buy into that when sometimes it's so far from the truth. Do you feel like regulation is sufficient in that sector? Or no. It, yeah. <laughs> no, sadly not. I think there's brands who are really able to push that and have the money, the marketing spend to get around certain legislations, laws to look like they are contributing to it when sadly they're not. But on the positive note as well is a lot is changing and a lot of brands want to do better and are trying to be more accountable and showing where they produce, being clear with their communication for the customer. And customers are demanding that, which is amazing. But I don't also want us to be fooled. There are lots of huge brands who are accelerating in growth and profiting so much that are not doing any good for the planet. There is an upcoming law change across Europe, from what I understand. I don't remember the actual date of insertion in terms of when that's obligatory, but I know that there have been conversations and maybe it actually will start in France. Does that yes, ring true? Yes, it yeah. is. It will start in France. And things like that are amazing. I just think money does talk, sadly. And I think as a consumer as well, really look where you spend your money. Well, firstly, do you need it? Does it need to be new? But then where are you spending your money? What is the brand? 
what are their values and really start questioning those things, it will all help. Clearly, you have been a fan of certain partners that you've managed to collaborate with when it comes to what Relux has done. Collaborations as a whole have just become largely more common in practice. So I was curious to hear your thoughts on why you think collaborations are having such a moment and also what role they've played for Relux already. I mean, I love collaborations. I always have. I think they inspire people, be it customers, be it anyone. I think it's so important for brands to do that engages people, excites people, and also to support each other, really to stand by what you believe in and what's true. And with Relux, that started with, I say, the women of Relux, mm-hmm. who I got involved, Amber being one of them, who I work with a lot, and her wanting to be on board with it, and people like Andrea, Dirkanu, or Xenia, and then working with brands for Relux and working with their archives. And it was either people I'd worked with in the industry, or it's a brand that I really liked and I thought stood true to the Relux aesthetic. And that's Mm -hmm. been great. It gives a broader reach and it's also great to be collaborative. Of course. And you talked about curation a little bit earlier and the way that manifests in Relux and what it is you choose to sort of bring on to the platform versus the way you curate a particular shoot, a fashion story, an ad campaign. What are some of the differences in this new role and the role that you've played historically as a fashion stylist when it comes to curation? I think with curation, when you do it on an editorial, you're not thinking so much as a business, dare I say it, and the finances and tapping into what market, etc. So this is a whole new world for me, honestly, Christopher. Suddenly, instead of working for a brand, I am the brand. I'm suddenly looking at the numbers and the figures and maybe they're the people I used to hide from when I I was being commissioned to do something. And now I am that. And it's really interesting to be on the other side. And I actually really enjoy it. And I find the data so interesting. We launched in Selfridges and they're doing this massive project called Worn Again. And I did a curated edit for them. And It's done so well, but seeing what's done so well and why that's done so well and the psychology, everything, I find that fascinating. I guess here I'm learning more and more in detail of the business and the finances. So that's different. Yeah, because you associate a creative intuition with instinct, right? It's this kind of in-gut experience. And yet when you're taking into consideration all of these relevant data points and letting that sort of inform how you go about things, I'm assuming that changes the whole experience, not in a way that prevents you from being creative, but it's probably a different type. But it could. I always hear that, you know, the suits be really careful because once they start looking (laughs) at the data. But I honestly, I still always try and take a step back and follow my guts. And I think that's when things go really well because you're following your intuition and then yeah you're following why you're doing something why you believe in it what you're passionate about why I started Relux and then it pays off and then when you see how successful the project is you think great I'm not going crazy it's not just me so that's always really rewarding and yes 
the figures, etc., do matter. But I really think it's also taking risks. I, I'm a firm believer you do have to take risks sometimes. I'm sure my team don't agree, but I will take <laughs> risks with stuff because otherwise I'll never learn. You know, I've made some mistakes, of course, but I can learn from that. And it's better earlier on, pre-launch, I made one mistake that we won't talk about. And I really learned. <laughs> well, you mentioned your team. How big is the team already? Oh my gosh. Honestly, it's growing. We're in interview processes right now for new people all the time. And it's brilliant. We are, oh gosh, 15 plus. It's amazing. My team is integral in so many different ways. And I remember talking to another very well-known female founder and her saying, just remember, you don't know how to do everything and you can't do everything. And don't think for a second you can. So the things you cannot do or don't know how to do, make sure there is someone there who can do that. And I've really learned that. I can't do everything. I don't have the bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And I don't know everything. I really don't. I've always been like this. I want to learn off other people and ask questions. And my husband, it drives him insane. But there's that curiosity. (laughs) I want to learn and ask way too many questions when I meet people. I love that. I'm definitely guilty of the same curiosity. And I think I find some people, if they don't understand it at first or realize that you're like that in general, they're kind of like, well, what's the interview about? But then at the same time, I feel like some people find it quite refreshing because most people are waiting for the chance to talk about themselves. And when you encounter someone who's genuinely curious about you, it dislodges all these truths and you find yourselves in really great conversation. Yeah. I mean, I love it when I meet a person and I'm listening to them, I will have about six questions after they've finished their few sentences and it's like oh god here goes Claire's interview (laughs) process but I'm generally I've always been like that intrigued by people people watching understanding different things that's how I've learned to be honest maybe that's why I don't think you're shy or you don't seem shy anyway There's always another generation coming up in the world. And as we mentioned, buzzwords like resale, circular fashion or sustainability itself, these are all becoming a part of the collective consciousness and just much more normalized than they were even a few years ago. So what type of advice do you have specifically for a kind of budding stylist or editor who is environmentally conscious and does hold those values coming up in the industry today? How would you suggest they navigate opportunities? Because it's still a tricky terrain. Honestly, I think be true to yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't shy away from it. If you believe in it and it matters to you, make it part of your job. Find a tribe of people who inspire you. You know, if you're a stylist and it's editorials, you know, who you're shooting. There's so many people who are doing amazing work from models, activists, etc. A combination of them. Make it part of your work. And brands, look at the brands you're working with and seeing that they're not just selling and discarding. You can stand up to it and not be afraid. And I think even more so now. And if you have a platform, be it Instagram and stuff, talk about it. You'll inspire other people and celebrate it. Don't be scared of it. I think there's so much going on now. And fashion is so powerful that you can really harness that and make it an amazing thing and still have lots of freedom within it, especially nowadays. It's talked about so much. When I started having these questions, 
being intrigued by it, it was smaller. So I think you can really use it for a positive in your career. I love that. And you're a mother. Obviously, we spoke about your children. You're a successful stylist. You're now a business owner. And to the audience who looks at you as someone who has it all, what dreams remain on the list that have yet to be achieved? A balance. (laughs) I I still can't get that right. I'm constantly week to week being like, oh my gosh, I need to balance more. Honestly, it's getting back to the basics more. I'm a true believer in that. I think that's what would keep so many of us more sane in this wonderful, crazy world. So I think getting back to basics a bit more for me, I could do with. I think we all could. Yeah. And when I'm there, I'm so happy. Time out etc. It's so good for you. And actually, I think you come back so much more inspired, rejuvenated, and probably a nicer and softer human being. The notion in general of the value in walking away so you can come back re-inspired, I think a lot of us need to be reminded of. Otherwise, you get caught in this autonomic programming day in and day out, and it actually compromises not just the quality of your life and how you experience it, but even the ideas you're bringing to the table, I'm sure. Yeah, and there's so much going on in this world. There's so many different things and incredible things that can inspire you in your work, and you can learn so much about that. I think it's a shame to keep it small. Branch out, that's what I think. I agree. And we have to ask you the namesake question. What do you think is contemporary now? I feel like this is like the exam question when you can (laughs) fail or pass with flying colors. To me, what's contemporary now is expressing yourself truthfully. That's what I think. And with what's going on in the world, be true to yourself and look around you and be in touch with that. And I think that's what's contemporary now to me. Beautifully said. Thank you again, Claire. I know that you're a busy lady juggling all these verticals and we couldn't be happier to have you on the show. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much, Christopher, and for the questions. They were really amazing. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes and for more content follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. 